the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated with. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? I believe they are. My opponents do not. of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. Tired of the center-left takes of the corporate media? You found the right take. How's it going, everybody? Welcome, welcome, one and all. This is episode number 82 here of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum here with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff, and we are continuing our deep dive, in-depth election coverage. Now, until the November midterms, we are, at the time of recording this, 20 days away from November the 8th, Election Day. And I'll tell you guys right now, again, I'm such a nerd about this stuff. I love elections. They're my blood sports. I'm starting to get uh, excited. I'm starting to get that pumped up feeling of let's go. The elections are coming. We are going to start seeing these results to these month-long and year-long races finally come rolling in. It's, of course, it's a relief, but also a bit intense. So for our last episode, of course, we focused exclusively on the Senate, the current state of the battle for the U.S. Senate, which is currently 50-50 with Vice President Kamala Harris set to break the tie whenever a tie happens. Republicans are looking to just make a net gain of one seat to retake the Senate, which should be easy. But we talked about last episode last week how it might not be so easy. We had our our friend, our guest, uh, Josh Heckethorn, talk about how Utah, of all states, could be the state that ultimately prevents the GOP from getting the Senate majority. We will see, of course, how that goes as we get closer to Election Day. But for this week... We are shifting our focus to the other House of Congress, 
the U.S. House of Representatives. The Republicans, of course, are much more heavily favored here to ultimately take back control of that chamber, unlike the uh, much rougher uphill battle that the Senate is going to be. We're going to be taking a look, of course, at the something we've been wanting to talk about for quite a while here on The Right Take. The Republican Party of the House, under the leadership of Minority Leader hoping to be Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy of California, from not too far from my old area, as a matter of fact, they released their national platform, the Commitment to America, which, of course, sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We're going to be taking a look at that and explaining how this really is no different from anything the GOP has said in the past. We are going to focus on the overall forecasts of the House midterms uh, as of this point, again, 20 days out from the elections, how it is looking for the Republican Party what kind of a majority will they win if they win a majority? Will it be a big majority? Will it be a narrow one? And to that end, Jacob and I have both selected a handful of races each that we are going to hyper-focus on as indicative of their chances of winning the majority and particular trends in each seat, whether it's a seat they're really about to blow, it's a seat that they are going to win, and what circumstances, what external factors are affecting these races. So to begin, Jacob, you and I have looked over this document, this handy dandy little, uh, they've converted it into a single page PDF summary, the commitment to America from Kevin McCarthy, which the first thought I had, and I'm sure you probably felt the same way too. This sounds a lot like he is just trying so hard to copy Newt Gingrich's 1994 contract with America. What say you, Jacob? I think it's extremely light on details. It could have done a lot better if it had gone more extensive than what it's talking about. And another problem with the, comparing this with Gingrich's contract with America is Gingrich's contract with America, I feel like, was a lot more touted in the media. At the time, it was a lot more popular with the general public, but also people knew about it. If you go out and ask the average Republican today, did you know that Kevin McCarthy issued a contract for America that Republicans are going to implement if they're elected? I would say 80 to 90 percent of Republican voters probably never even heard of it, no. and much less even moderate voters or potentially leaning Republican voters. This is not something that's on anybody's mind right now, and I feel like they haven't done enough trying to promote it and market it to voters like Gingrich did in 1994. That's a very good point. I mean, for one, the media, of course, back then was not as horribly biased against Republicans as they are now. But yeah, it was such a revolutionary thing for a speaker, a member of the House to essentially release a national platform like a presidential candidate would. Now, keep in mind, of course, in 1994, the big the Republican revolution, as it were, that ended up being the first time in 50 years that Republicans got control of the House of Representatives. And it was due in large part to Gingrich's leadership. So you can tell, of course, that McCarthy, who is in line to be speaker, he's been he's been in line to be speaker since 2015, you know, when uh, Boehner was forced to resign and McCarthy stepped up to the plate, then suddenly backed out due, I guess, to allegations of an extramarital affair or something like that. I don't know. He has been wanting this job ever since then. Of course, it's Ryan basically cut in line and took it away from him. So, of course, he wants to compare himself to Newt Gingrich. I think he wants to be so badly the most influential speaker of either party in a generation. He wants to be the guy who leads a massive revolution for the Republicans in Congress. But already the forecast doesn't look good since, let's be honest, you know, they, they took 63 seats in the House in 2010, which blew their 1994 results out of the water. That was bigger than 94. And most projections have them not likely to get that much. They're not going to get 60 seats. They're not going to have that big of a net gain. So McCarthy's already fallen short there. But like you said, yeah, when I finally looked at this platform, A, 
there was, yeah, there was definitely a coordinated effort to promote it when it first came out on, like, Fox News. Like, Fox was just shilling for it all day long when it came out, naturally. But there was no coordinated effort, really, beyond that. There was no... There was there was no fanfare. There was like a press conference that McCarthy did with uh, at least Stephanie and, and the other leadership, Steve Scalise. But it, they didn't really push it. And when you read this platform, this one page PDF, you can see why. Like you said, it not only is it light on details, as you said, Jacob, it sounds just so familiar. It sounds just like any Republican platform you've ever heard. So let's just go through the sections here. There are four sections. The first is, and again, this is super brief. We'll include a link in the description below. It's one page for a reason. An economy that's strong. That's the first section, by the way, is the economy, because of course it is. Fight inflation and lower the cost of living. Curb wasteful government spending that is raising the price of groceries, gas, cars, and housing, and growing our national debt. Increase take-home pay. Create good-paying jobs and bring stability to the economy through pro-growth tax and deregulatory policies. <sighs> all right yeah th this is basic fiscal policy we've seen this before i mean come on man next one is a little bit better i suppose make america energy independent and reduce gas prices maximize production of reliable cleaner american-made energy and cut the permitting process in time in half to reduce reliance on foreign countries prevent rolling blackouts and lower the cost of gas and utilities Oh, so just like what President Trump did, basically, then. When we became energy independent and energy dominant, a net exporter of energy under just his first term alone. And that that's kind of the thing right there. Trump was able to do it largely through executive power. He didn't need Congress to do that, which highlights the question, of course, how do they plan to do this? As long as Biden is still in office, as long as his crazy Secretary of the Interior is still in charge of Secretary of the Interior, and they're shutting down all permitting and revoking permits that have already been given out, they're completely stopping domestic energy production. How are you going to fight that even with a House majority? You can't. You just simply, you can't. So it's good policy, but it's impossible policy. Lastly, in the economic section, strengthen the supply chain and end dependence on China. Move supply chains away from China, expand U.S. manufacturing, and enhance America's economic competitiveness and cyber resiliency. Again, just like Trump, made in America – uh, protectionism on trade and no none of this free trade garbage which again it's good they're learning from trump on that america first approach to the economy but again like with energy they can't do jack on trade if they don't have the white house so that's mood second section a nation that's safe this gets better i suppose secure the border and combat illegal immigration fully fund effective border enforcement strategies infrastructure and advanced technology to prevent illegal crossings and trafficking by cartels End catch-and-release loopholes, require legal status to get a job, and eliminate welfare incentives. I'm seeing a recurring pattern here, Jacob, because, again, this is just like what Trump did, but like with Trump, you need the executive to do this. Winning a House majority is not going to replace Alejandro Mayorkas at DHS, all right? He's still going to be there for at least another two years. Next up— yeah, it's, uh, like, it's almost like they think that they're— they're trying to trick voters into thinking that if they win the House, that they're going to be able to implement policy. We'll get the wall built if we win the House. Yeah, exactly. Next up, and that's that's the only bit on immigration, by the way. The rest of this uh, safety section shifts a little bit more to the focus on crime. Reduce crime and protect public safety. Support 200,000 more police officers through recruiting bonuses and oppose all efforts to defund the police. Crack down on prosecutors and district attorneys who refuse to prosecute crimes while permanently criminalizing all forms of illicit fentanyl. 
Good, yes, but this, once again, not the executive this time. This isn't a matter of the executive branch. This is up to local authorities, all right? Local mayors, governors, you know, county authorities. Those people have a right to do those things. People in the House, members of the House in Washington, they have no authority over that. They can't go fire uh, Kim Gardner in Missouri or, you know, those crazy uh, Kim Fox over in uh, in Chicago. They can't fire those source-appointed attorneys just because they have a House majority. So once again, useless. I'm going to sound repetitive here, but there's a reason for that. When you know just a little bit about how this works, basic civics, if you will, there's nothing they can do on any of these issues. Lastly, in the safety section, defend America's national security, support our troops, invest in an efficient, effective military, establish a select committee on China, and exercise peace through strength with our allies to counter increasing global threats. Again, executive. Lloyd Austin is the Secretary of Defense. Mark Milley is Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You're not going to be able to fix the military and reverse all the CRT indoctrination through House Majority. The f- finally, though, we did get to one thing they can do, which is establish a committee, a select committee on China. I'm like, okay, good. But again, what are you going to do with that? You can't implement trade policy or cybersecurity policy without Biden's approval. Section three, a future that's built on freedom. Make sure every student can succeed and give parents a voice. Advance the Parents' Bill of Rights, recover lost learning from school closures, and expand parental choice so over a million more students can receive the education their parents know is best. Defend fairness by ensuring that only women can compete in women's sports. So this is addressing the the education issue, which we've said on this podcast ever since Virginia. This is the most powerful issue you can possibly run on is educational indoctrination, including CRT and transgenderism. This is good, but again, this goes back to local authorities. Governors like Ron DeSantis and elsewhere, those are the ones who can do this, who can pass parental bill of rights to affect various states. If you're going to try to do this at the federal level, again, you need the Senate and the president. Biden is never going to sign a bill banning critical race theory or affirming only women can compete, biological women can compete in women's sports. He's going to appeal to the tranny lobby. He's never going to allow that. Achieve longer, healthier lives for Americans. Personalized care to provide affordable options and better quality delivered by trusted doctors. Lower prices through transparency, choice, and competition. Invest in life-saving cures and improve access to telemedicine. I don't know. It almost sounds like an aide probably came up with the idea of replicating the 1994 contract with America. And McCarthy thought that was a great idea, but didn't actually put much thought into addressing the issues that are facing Americans in 2022. The problem with a lot of this stuff is it's very moody in the sense that it appeals to people who are in the mood for something right now. Mm-hmm. Some of this stuff won't really be an issue in five years. It won't be really be an issue in 10 years. Hopefully, a lot of the stuff will be resolved by then. But the thing with Gingrich's contract with America is you could simply take the contract with America in 1994, slightly tweak it a little bit, and just apply it to 2022, and it'd still work. It's very fiscally conservative, obviously. It's very much in the Reagan vein, but you could still take that and make it work. Finishing up this future built on freedom section, confront big tech and demand fairness. Provide greater privacy and data security protections. Equip parents with more tools to keep their kids safe online and stop companies from putting politics ahead of people. Again, super generic and big tech. I I do like that line. I think that's a really good update for the current climate that we're in. Stop companies from putting 
uh, what was it putting profits about people what was putting uh, politics putting politics ahead of people yeah so that's a very good line uh, uh, i feel like but again it's very it's there's no details like exactly how exactly you're just going to use the bully pulpit of the speaker's house to of the, you know, of the speaker of the house of that position which really isn't much of a bully pulpit historically the speaker no. of the house does not have a bully pulpit Exactly. Yeah. Like it's good because obviously big tech was an issue back in 1994. But yeah, what are you going to do? Are you going to do trust busting? Are you going to try to revoke Section 230, uh, apply common carrier law to them? Like, how are you going to do this? No specifics that painfully short on specifics, which is what you really need. Show the voters you have a plan instead of just platitudes. Last section here, a government that's accountable. Preserve our constitutional freedoms. Uphold free speech, protect the lives of unborn children and their mothers, guarantee religious freedom, and safeguard the Second Amendment. So that's just kind of a hodgepodge of major social issues all at once. Hold Washington accountable. Conduct rigorous oversight to rein in government abuse of power and corruption. Provide real transparency and require the White House to answer for its incompetence at home and abroad. Say we will have committees on XYZ, introduce articles of impeachment against one member of the cabinet. You don't even have to say who it is. Just say, we will pursue impeachment of at least one cabinet member. But no. They, well, speaking uh, of impeachment, Kevin McCarthy recently did an interview with Mashable in which he said <laughs> that he will not, he very strongly emphasized that he would not be interested in pursuing impeachment against Joe Biden. He exclaimed that, Americans really aren't interested in politically motivated impeachments, and that's just not something that's uh, at the top of his agenda. I would argue that Joe Biden's border policies in themselves mm-hmm. offer plenty of fodder for impeachment. But uh, yeah, that's another thing. A lot of Republican voters are hoping that when Republicans take the House, oh, that means we can impeach Joe Biden. Uh-uh, that's not going to happen. But here's the th- it just goes to the point that Democrats are much more apt to appease their base than Republicans are. Real quick here, wrapping it up. Uh, under the hold Washington accountable section. This is one line that stood out to me. Very short, save and strengthen social security and Medicare. Now, I actually think that's really good. If nothing else, that shows they really learned from Trump. Because if you remember, up prior to Trump, most Republicans running for president and office in general were unapologetic in saying, oh yeah, well, we gotta be fiscally responsible, guys. We gotta reduce the national debt. And if that means cutting social security and Medicare and other welfare programs like that, You just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get used to it. That was how they were able to, the Dems were able to run that infamous ad in 2012 depicting Paul Ryan pushing an old lady in a wheelchair off of the Grand Canyon, you know, saying, oh, this is what they want to do by taking away Social Security and Medicare. And the fact of the matter is cutting welfare programs like these that have been around for decades is not popular. It's barely even popular with the Republican base to begin with, let alone Democrats and independents. So Trump finally came along in 2016 and had to smack the GOP around a little bit. And he was the only Republican on stage who said, you know, I'm fine with Social Security and and the Medicare and the welfare. I'm not going to touch it. You know, and that kind of shocked, you know. Republican consultants and fiscal conservative uh, policy wonk, you know, think tank experts, but it worked. They saw, hey, Trump's not going to mess with our welfare. Shoot, I'll turn around and vote for the guy. That played over well in the Rust Belt. So hearing this from the GOP is definitely a good sign. If they mean it, if they hold to it, that does show me some hope that the party is finally beginning to learn from Trump's example. Lastly, uh, restore the people's voice. End special treatment for members of Congress by repealing proxy voting and increase accountability in the election process through voter ID, accurate voter rolls, and observer access. That's, I think, for the last line, that's probably one of the strongest ones in here. I mean, A, specific policy, repealing proxy voting for members of Congress. B, that's something you guys can do. Yes, congratulations. You finally found something you guys have the authority to do, and you've said you will do it. Good for you. 
and then increase uh, election integrity, um, accurate voter rolls, voter ID, et cetera, et cetera, observer access, all in the aftermath of 2020. That is good. But again, you ain't going to pass a bill like that at the federal level without the White House. So all in all, this this page, this document, this one-page document, we'll have a link in the description. It's full of platitudes, no specific policies other than one or two brief suggestions. And most of what they promise will do are things they cannot do without the Senate and the White House or otherwise things that would better off be being handled by governors or local authorities and state legislatures. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, a lot of this, and one of the things that's striking about this, and I mentioned this before, but they're not really running on it. I mean, no. the purpose, the whole purpose of having a, what is essentially a promise to voters is that you're going to take these issues and you're going to run on these issues and you're going to hammer these issues over and over and over again in political ads. And not only are you going to hit these issues, but you're going to refer voters back to your contract with America. So voters will know that if they elect you, they are voting for these specific principles. Instead, what they're doing is they're basically just taking like inflation, crime, a few of these non-specific items, they're throwing them together in ads and they're running on those issues. And they're not even referencing, at least I haven't seen, among pundits or ads or anything than actually referencing this contract with America. It's basically like it was a blip in the radar. And really, if you look at, if you read the articles on it, the media actually paid more attention to the fact that Marjorie Taylor Greene was on stage with McCarthy than they did the actual contents of the contract. Because they, of course, want to try to paint her as the rights AOC. Yes. And the fact that she, uh, McCarthy is having her up on stage shows, oh, well, she's becoming the party. Like the party is becoming the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so they focused on that, didn't focus on any of the specifics. And after, if she wasn't even on the stage, the media would probably largely ignored this. Yeah. Um, but this is actually, this actually falls on Republicans to promote this agenda, which tells me that they're not that excited about it. Like this was kind of like an afterthought. Yeah, we'll try a contract with America, see if it picks up and holds on and it doesn't seem to be doing so. Commitment to America, which again, that's what it's called. It's it's That's such a lame title compared to Contract with America. Contract with America actually made sense. Like the, the suggestion, the, the language of that. This is like a contract, a binding document that I, Newt Gingrich, on behalf of the Republican Party, am signing with you, the American people. Elect us, we will get this done commitment to america doesn't quite sound the same like oh i'm committed to the country like i'm a patriot i love america like it's it's not the same but it's a similar word even a word that starts with the letter c like contracts are enforceable by law yes contracts are enforceable by law you can take someone to court if they break a contract you can't take someone to court if they just give you a verbal commitment a lot to be desired, but again, I, I think this won't – it certainly doesn't help them, but it doesn't hurt them because like you said, people just aren't paying attention in general. This – they will – if they ultimately do win a House majority, it will be despite this new platform and this new commitment, not because of it. So before we jump into individual races, because we're each going to take uh, – Eric's going to do five, I'm going to do five, and maybe a sixth, and then we'll look at a couple of ones that are men- honorable mentions that Republicans need to hold before we dive into the individual congressional races and the dynamics of those races. Uh, I first want to recap exactly where we stand with the House races. Currently, Republicans stand a very, very good chance of holding of taking the House from Nancy Pelosi of giving the gavel to Kevin McCarthy from Nancy Pelosi. They hold, I believe it's a 70% chance with 538, the Cook Political Report, and Politico, and Real Clear Politics, all the others, they're all favoring the Republicans overwhelmingly. So yes. 
right now, it's basically a question of what of how big this majority is going to be. Some have it as low as 10 seats that could flip. Others have it as high as 40, which honestly, considering how the economy is doing, considering that Joe Biden, Joe freaking Biden is president, <laughs> considering the just the, the boorish authoritarianism and totalitarianism that the FBI yeah. and other agencies have displayed toward Americans, it should be 60 seats. The absolute, the, the, open border, the open border madness, the crime wave, everything, the education crap, it should be, like you said, 60, mm-hmm. which would be on par with the 2010 landslide, which was 63 seats. That was like the biggest house swing ever since like the 40s, I think. For context, real quick, just for the numbers for you guys. Uh, again, in the House of Representatives right now, you need 218 seats or more for a majority. Republicans currently hold 212 to the Dems, 220. So they only need to pick up just six seats. So yeah, again, they should get a majority by all counts. The question is, will it be a large enough majority that you won't have maybe a handful of, you know, cucks who anti-Trumper types who may spoil anything they try to vote on, like the Senate in Trump's first two years? Yeah, I recently wrote an article about the midterms 100 years ago, 1922, and in that election, Democrats won like 70, they flipped like 77 seats. So it's not out of the ordinary for the party out of out of power to just go just run the board on during the midterms. But the reason why we're not seeing that, which is what we would see 10, 15, 20 years ago, is because of the media vacuum in this country. There is a complete lack of objective reporting. The average American knows something's wrong, but because they can't get the truth out of the media, they just tune it all out. So when they're polled, a lot of times they don't even answer pollsters, and a lot of times they don't mm-hmm. even go up to show up to vote. But also on the other on the flip side of the coin, you've got a lot of Democrats. They're not enjoying living in this mess. They're they're miserable right now. But because they're Democrats, they're going to show up and they're going to vote Democrat because they think that if Republicans getting power, it's going to get that much worse. And the reason why they they're going to vote Democrat anyway is because they don't know anything about the FBI rates. They right. don't know anything about the lack of civil liberties. They think that the border is a myth. They think that it's a complete myth that people are pouring across the border. We have no border security because they live so far away from the border. It doesn't affect their personal lives. And in a normal economy, in a normal country, like 10, 20 years ago, all of this would have been reported and they would have felt it. Another issue is economics. Because we live in the tech age, a lot of middle class Democrats are completely shielded by the economic havoc that's being wreaked by shipping industrial jobs overseas and bringing in foreigners to do our service sector work. Because a lot of these upper middle class Democrats, they're very safe and secure in their economic well-being. They have a nice house in the suburbs. They're living the American dream that Republican suburbanites lived 40 years ago, and they're not going to feel the economic pain for a very long time. So you're not going to appeal to these people based on populist issues, populist, but based on economics. In other words, for them, it's not the economy stupid. No. It's abortion stupid. And this is it's one social thing issues. It's, it's cultural issues. Yeah. Yeah, this is one thing that Democrats were very bullish on during the summer after the overturn of Roe v. Wade. They really felt that the overturning of Roe v. Wade would cause Democratic, especially Democratic women, to show up in droves and vote. And it did increase a lot of voter registrations. So there are going to be a lot more people voting Democrat than there would have been if Roe v. Wade had not been overturned. But they were going so far as to predict that they would keep the House, which, of course, was ridiculous. And they're just now starting to come back to earth. Uh, Vox ran an article recently entitled Democratic Optimism About the Midterms is Fading. The polls have shifted a bit toward the GOP, but the vibes have shifted a lot. And what they're saying is that, yeah, the polls, they were starting to show Democrats might have an edge in in July and August, but not only are those polls starting to go back toward the Republicans, but the vibe is really starting to lean toward Republicans. Like Democrats can sense 
they're about to get wiped out and it's starting to scare them half to death. So well, we're just going to briefly go over some of the things that Biden and the Democrats are trying to do to reverse the trend to save the sinking ship. One of the things that Biden did whenever oil prices started to uh, whenever oil prices started to dip and gas prices started to go up, the way that he decided to fix that problem after stopping all purchases of oil from and gas from Russia is by releasing our strategic energy reserves, our strategic oil reserves. Well, and that is kept in case we are at, attacked ourselves. Like if we're being invaded, we have that strategic oil reserve for an emergency. For an emergency, yeah, like a, like a nuclear war, like World War Three breaks out, yeah. And so when he released those oil reserves, it caused the it caused gas prices to slowly start to fall. Of course, it took a couple of months for this to happen. But if you noticed in June, July, gas prices started to fall, and his approval ratings went from thirty six percent. They shot up all the way to forty five percent. Yep. And this is one thing that this article is pointing out. We're going to link in the description that his approval rating is pegged to the price of gas. And this is partly the fault of Republicans for tying economics and gas prices to his approval rating. Because when you when people are plastering, I did that stickers on every gas <laughs> pump across America. When gas prices start to fall, guess what? Voters are going to start to give Biden credit for yep. the falling gas prices because they were it was drilled in them every time they went to get gas that they should blame Biden for the gas prices. So subconsciously, Biden's going to get credit when gas system, when gas prices start to fall, and he recognizes. And here's why it's very smart for him to dip into the strategic oil reserves, even though to me that is borderline treasonous. Because yes. when you take away from our oil reserves right now are the lowest point they've been since 1984. If we were to somehow get attacked for whatever reason, get attacked by China, we're we're going to be in a pickle because we have the lowest oil reserves in history. We have not ramped up domestic oil production, and to make matters – and really the only reason he did this obviously was for politics because he recognized that it would be worth putting the nation's well-being at risk in order to drive gas prices down in time for the midterms. And recently he announced that he's going to be re releasing an additional 15, round of 15 – was it 15, 15 million? 15 million more barrels of oil. Yeah, 15 million more barrels of oil out of our strategic reserve. And here's why this is a brilliant political move. The average Republican doesn't know anything – the average voter doesn't know anything about barrels of oil. They don't know how many barrels of oil we have in our strategic reserve. They didn't, most of them didn't even know we had a strategic reserve until Biden started to do this. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't necessarily going to cause that many people to revolt against the Democrats. What is going to cause them to revolt against Republicans is when those gas prices start to fall just in time for the midterms. Yes. So it, this, is a, this is a Hail Mary. It's not going to work. I don't think this is going to work in keeping the House blue. But this could matter in a certain select number of races in which, you know, you're talking about races going to be decided by 2,000 votes, 5,000 votes, 10,000 votes. This could keep those particular House seats blue and cause what would have been a red wave to be a slight blip in the radar and a very tight race, like maybe 10 to 15 seats ended up getting flipped instead of the 30 or 40 that we were expecting. Exactly. So It'll one, be a, a red splash, if nothing else. And yeah, yeah like, a little, little red ripple. And like you said, they don't even most voters don't even know what the strategic oil reserves are, much less that these are reserved. It's break glass in case of emergency. This is for emergency use only. And we actually do have a cut here of Biden. Uh, surprisingly, some reporters doing their job and grilling him on this, asking him about the release of the strategic oil reserves 20 days out from the election. And this is what he had to say. Just what is your response to Republicans who say you are only doing this SPR release because to help Democrats in the midterms? Where have they been the last four months? That's my response. Is it politically motivated, sir? This no, it's not. Three weeks before the midterms? 
Look, it makes sense. I've been doing this for how long now? It's not politically motivated at all. He, I, I don't know if like he genuinely believes that or if he thinks we're so stupid that we'll believe that. Unfortunately, I think not to say stupid, but unfortunately, a lot of voters are going to think it's not political. They'll think, oh, it's just Biden doing his job to lower gas prices for us. He's helping us like a president should. So, yeah, well, like he seems to be under the impression that just because he started doing this back in March, that it wasn't politically motivated back in March. Mm-hmm. So he's correct that he has been he's been doing this since right after Russia invaded Ukraine. So this has been going on for six, seven, eight months ever since that he stopped the sales to stop, stop the purchases from Russia. Because gas prices, if you remember, once he stopped the sales from Russia, gas prices shot up. I know in the D.C. area, it was like 390 and it shot up in 24 hours to about 420. Yep. And so he knew that was going to be it was just going to wipe Democrats out. So he had to do something. But to argue that just because he started back in March, that it wasn't politically motivated then. So like what did he not have his eye on the midterms in March and April whenever his approval ratings were in the 30s? Of course. He so did. yeah, that doesn't obviously doesn't make any sense. But um, but yeah, obviously it's politically motivated. And the problem with this is I don't hear Republicans calling him out for the fact that he's touching the oil reserves at all. Forget if it's politi- politically motivated. The fact that he's even digging into that at all, he should not be touching those oil reserves. We are not in an emergency no. right now. This is the thing. High gas prices are not an emergency. We can pay three eighty at the pump. We can pay $4 at the pump. Heck, we can pay $7 at the pump. That's not a national emergency. That's not worth, worth dipping into the strategic oil reserve to lower gas prices. The only reason why president would do that is if it affects his approval ratings. Exactly. And even if it were an emergency, if you were to argue it's an emergency, there's a very simple solution that doesn't involve the strategic petroleum reserves. Expand domestic production, for God's sake. Just do what Trump did. Just let them drill, baby, drill as they were. That is, again, how we became energy independent for the first time in, I think, 70 years in by the time his term is even done. It wasn't even like by the end of Trump's first term. It was well into his first term. Boom, we're already energy energy independent. You're welcome. And gas prices were really, really low. Just do that. Well, Don't drill. Yeah, well, yeah. He, that's what he's planning on doing. This is another thing. This is another thing why. Here's the thing about Biden. Yeah, he's senile. He's old. He's got whatever. I think he has dementia. But he is a politician. Mm-hmm. He has always been a politician. He has always – he's managed to hold on to that Senate seat in Delaware because he's a, he's a good politician. And one of the ways that he's going to win a lot of swing voters back – is because he needs to replenish those oil reserves. So one of the ways that he's going to do that is he's going to call on oil companies to ramp up production because currently 2023 is looking to be a very low oil producing year, not just with OPEC, not just with the United States, but with everybody around the world because there's just not as much demand as there was before the pandemic. Demand has not reached pre-pandemic levels yet, and it's not going to for several years down the road. So in order to throw a bone to the oil companies, in order to throw a bone to Nevada and Pennsylvania, he's going to demand, he's going to offer to buy the oil necessary to replenish those strategic reserves in 2023 and 2024, which is going to create tens of thousands of jobs in the oil industry. Mm-hmm. And he's going to be able to rightfully point to those jobs in Nevada and Pennsylvania in 2024 and say, look, I did that. Because we bought all that oil from these oil companies, I created all those tens of thousands of jobs. And let's be honest, a lot of the workers are going to buy it because they don't keep up with politics. We don't have a media that educates the average blue-collar worker about politics. They're going to be like, okay, yeah, Biden decided to buy all this oil from the oil companies, and this gave me a good-paying job, so I'm going to vote for Biden. Uh, so yeah, these are, these are things that, you know, Republicans, that they actually want to take the White House in 2024, they've got to be able to remind voters, remember, this is the guy that said he was going to completely end 
all fracking in Pennsylvania. Yep. This is the guy who said he wants to move to clean energy. What is it like by 2040? Completely eliminate all oil production, all fracking altogether. But this is a communications issue, and you can't just you can't just focus on gas prices, gas prices, inflation, gas prices, taxes. If you want to actually break through to the average voter about Joe Biden's actual green energy plans and what he, I mean, it's all politically motivated. He'll ramp up oil production for poll numbers. He'll tap into strategic oil reserve for poll numbers. He'll break his promises to his green base. He'll do anything necessary as a politician will for poll numbers. And this is kind of the subtle threat that Joe Biden poses to the country. Indeed it is. And again, the, the only thing more threatening at this point than Biden's radical agenda is an incompetent Republican Party that can do nothing to stop it because they don't know how to fight it, or rather they don't know how to do the messaging correctly. So with that said, we are actually going to go ahead and, as we said before, we're going to focus on a handful of races we've each handpicked for this particular episode. I think in the final or uh, penultimate episode before the midterms, we're going to have just a full episode of our predictions. We're going to cover all of our predictions for major, any key races we want to talk about for Senate, House, governor's races, et cetera, et cetera. But here we're going to talk about just a small handful as kind of a sampling, if you will, a sample size of the key races in the for the House of Representatives across the country where Republicans may lose, Republicans may win, and what this means for the broader implications for the majority they hope to win. So first I wanted to focus on uh, Texas 34. This is one I actually uh, was reminded of by something that was we posted to our Gab account a little while ago. That, of course, is the seat that was won in a special election earlier this year by a Republican named Myra Flores. You may remember her. She was on Fox News a lot right after that. That was back in June uh, after the incumbent Democrat there, uh, Philemon Vela, resigned to take a position with some lobbying firm or some company. So she ultimately ended up winning against a Hispanic Democrat, and it was seen as a huge upset. It was seen as a massive big deal. You know, Fox News talked about it nonstop. They said, like, oh, is this a sign that, you know, uh, Latinos are shifting permanently to the Republican Party now? It's a border district, like the very southern tip of the border uh, that Texas shares with Mexico. But now, unfortunately for Ms. Flores, thanks to redistricting, she is not only being forced into the same district as another incumbent, uh, that's Democrat Vicente Gonzalez, but the district is now shifted from D plus five to D plus 17 and against an incumbent Democrat. So, sorry, the writing's on the wall. She's not going to win. She is definitely going to lose this November. That's just a given. But Republicans still will not give up this seat. They are still giving way too much money to this hopelessly lost seat. And this is highlighted in an article in in the Intelligencer magazine, uh, which the focus of the magazine overall, the title is How the Border Went MAGA. And it basically focuses on the very real and correct assumption that the border crisis is absolutely killing Democrats. They cannot run on the border. They cannot realistically point to the border whatsoever and try to spin. Oh, we're doing a good job here, guys. You should support how we handle the border. No, they're getting killed on that, even with their own base, let alone with Republican voters and independents. But there was one paragraph in the article that really stood out. And this is the one you pointed out to me, Jacob, that talk about how, again, a border district that Flores is in, she's now most likely going to lose. Quote, most independent prognosticators now peg Flores as an underdog, but that doesn't mean her victory this summer was pointless. When I spoke to him in July, Vicente Gonzalez seemed almost perplexed about why the GOP invested so heavily in a district it seemed destined to control for such a short time. Gonzalez said, quote, I asked one of my Republican colleagues I'm close with, why would y'all do that if the district changes from D plus four to D plus 16? 
And he didn't bat an eye. He said, because we get to own the message of a Latina Republican for six months. I'm just like, are, are you serious? Like, okay, you know you were going to lose, but you're going to pour however much money they poured in into this race when that money could have gone to real swing districts with hardcore America First nationalist candidates. This is just a prime exemplar of the GOP completely throwing away actual political viability in favor of crafting an artificial narrative of minority support. Oh, we've got Hispanics mm-hmm. who are shifting to our side, if, even if it's just for a few months. Again, if she, assuming she loses the election, she will have served for only five months. If you go all the way to January when the congressional term officially expires, she will have been in for about seven months. So not even one, not even a full year, barely half a year. Yes, her victory in that particular election, in that special election, was a big deal for that particular district. That area had not been represented by a Republican for over 100 years. But is it indicative of a massive shift across the board for Latinos? We can't say for certain yet. It could indeed be representative that border districts are shifting hard to the right. Obviously, in Texas and Arizona, they have to bear the absolute brunt of this open borders amnesty nonsense. Of course, they're going to shift to the Republicans. Just like, you know, the state of Missouri, which almost went for Obama by like less than a percentage point in 2008 and then went for Romney in 2012, suddenly shifted way harder to the right after the Ferguson riots, you know, the race riots there with uh, the Michael Brown shooting. And Trump won it by twice as big of a margin as Romney did. But that doesn't mean that, oh, we're going to win the Hispanic vote now, guys. You may very well do better with Hispanics than you did, say, two years ago. But that doesn't mean you need to completely throw away other races and forget who your core base is in favor of you know being able to put this woman on fox news for a few months i think at the end of the day when she ultimately loses she will be remembered as a slightly more successful and latina version of kim clasic jacob of course we remember yes. kim clasic right? yes they they poured she ended up raising over eight million dollars from small donors for small dollar donors for her campaign for maryland's uh seventh congressional district she proceeded for a seat that she didn't have a snowball's chance in Cuba of winning. Absolutely not. She got like a quarter. She got twenty five percent of the vote. She got destroyed in the general election. But they hey, but st- it made a viral a viral YouTube video of her walking around in Baltimore wearing a dress and high heels. But yeah, she spoke for the Republican National Convention in twenty twenty. She was all over Fox News. And then, of course, remember, after she lost, she turned around and complained on Fox News. She had the audacity to claim that the GOP did nothing for her. She's like, the, R- the RNC did nothing to help me. I'm like, you spoke at the convention. They gave you millions of dollars. What are you talking about? So just ungrateful person. And then, of course, after she got into a big feud with Candace Owens and her past life as a stripper was ousted, she now is just completely vanished from the Fox News circuit. <laughs> well, the thing about Myra Flores is the district she represents – it goes back like that's obviously a, it's been a heavily Mexican district going back all the way to the 1840s, back when that area belonged to Mexico. But the thing about her is she's not even descended from those Tejanos who became American citizens with the forced purchase of that area. I should say the conquering of that area during the Mexican War. She was born in Mexico. Myra Flores is an immigrant. She is not a Mexican-American. She is an actual immigrant. She immigrated from Mexico. Do you even know if she's an American citizen? Has she gotten her citizenship? I cannot say for certain, no. I mean, even if she has, she's not even eligible to run for president one day. So they're trying to make this star out of this woman who couldn't even run for president if she wanted to. But the thing is, like, if you're going to tout this 
Hispanic American resurgence over to the Republican Party, why wouldn't you at least grab somebody who was born in Texas who has Hispanic ancestry rather than grabbing an actual immigrant to run in this in this district? Because the people in this district aren't immigrants. They were born there, mm -hmm. the vast majority of them. But yeah, you're going to get an immigrant, an actual Mexican to represent them. And another thing about Meyer Flores that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way is she started going off on Twitter touting her Mexicanness. Like, not necessarily claiming that she was a proud American. No, she was very much an out and out proud Mexican. And at one point, she tweeted, Don't make fun of people who speak with an accent. They can speak two languages. You can only speak one. That type of thing. And, you know, stuff like that. And it's, it's just, that's not like basically poking nationalists, American nationalists in the eye every chance she got. It's like, look, lady, the only reason why you're even in the news is because the big boys at the RNC want their beer buddies and their, I should say, their cocktail buddies to think that they're not racist. Like, that's the only reason why you're even in the news, because you've got all the RNC folks pouring, just throwing millions and millions of dollars at your race. She outspent her opponent in that race like 10 to 1. Like, it was just ridiculous how much they were carpet bombing that race with Republican donors' money. And really, again, it just goes back to the fact that the RNC is completely out of touch with the, the white working class, the base of the Republican Party. They care more about being perceived as not racist by their Hollywood buddies, by their Washington, D.C. buddies, by their New York buddies, than they do actually serving the interests of 80 to 90 percent of the people who vote for them. And, yeah, this woman is not going to win. She may She's going to outperform the D plus 17 just because, yeah, Hispanics on the border, they are going more Republican. But – it's not she's not going to overcome 17 you know deficit of 17 points so speaking of let's go ahead and talk about another race that does involve a proud american nationalist the kind of guy who does appeal to the base the blue collar white working class base in a state that is more representative of the people that we really need in order to win ohio nine and jacob this is a race that you said you're familiar with as well this is a seat for this is incredible can we give a round of applause to the ohio gop here this seat it was District 9 before, and it's District 9 now. It used to be D plus 16 and is now R plus 6. That's a 22-point swing. So give it up for the Ohio GOP. That's incredible. I'll give them props for that. They gerrymandered like they needed to to give us another Republican seat, and that's great. We support that because they've already been doing it to us. The district previously covered the northern shore of Ohio, stretching as far east as portions of Cleveland. But with a stroke of a pen, the district was shifted significantly to the west into more rural territory, you know, the northwestern corner of the state. And the new 5th district cuts right up and into the old 9th district's eastern half. So it completely cuts off their access to Cleveland. So it's now a very deep red rural seat, which is great. The incumbent there is a Democrat named Marcy Kaptur, who has been there since she was first elected in 1982 so for almost 40 years now she's actually the second longest serving woman in the history of congress if she were to be reelected this year she would surpass the record currently held by former maryland senator barbara mikulski and she would become the new longest serving woman in the history of congress so a feminist icon here if you will but she could very well lose this race and her chance at that title at the hands of a based lawnmower man her challenger is a guy named J.R. Majewski, an Air Force veteran who first rose to viral fame after a Newsmax segment highlighted his tendency to use his lawnmowers and his hedge trimmers and whatnot to create pro-Trump lawn art, large-scale, you know, uh, Trump 2020 signs in his lawn, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And he decided to translate this popularity, courtesy of Newsmax, into a congressional run. And he ran for the seat. And he ultimately did win the primary fairly narrowly against several other candidates. He won due in large part to being endorsed by President Trump in the primary. That carried him over the finish line, and he is the nominee now. However, despite this district's new Republican lean, Majewski has come under fire for allegedly misrepresenting his military service. That's all. That's that's a third rail if ever there was one. He claimed that he served in Afghanistan, you know, in the war zone under really tough conditions that included no running water which forced him to go for 40 days without a shower. Yikes. But apparently, he only, the extent of his time, uh, this is from the Associated Press, he served about six months at an air base in Qatar loading planes, loading and offloading planes with equipment and weaponry and vehicles and whatnot. So apparently he never Ouch. saw, he never saw combat. He was never in the thick of it. Um, You could see, he could get away with that image. He is a big, burly guy. He's got a beard and everything, but fact is, he never saw combat. He served, He's telling the truth about that. He's not like the um, the the Indian guy from the the Nicholas Sandman incident who claimed he was a Vietnam veteran but never even served to begin with. Like, not quite that bad, but still, you exaggerated, buddy. And first off, that's objectively really dumb on this guy's part. You to lie about something that can be so easily verified by public record. Come on, dude, you walked right into that one. Secondly, this is what gets me even more. He did not need to create a wartime story in order to be popular with the base. He still is a veteran. That's enough. You you don't have to have served in combat. You know, I don't think Tulsi Gabbard served in combat. I think she was a, she may have been in a medical unit. I'm not entirely sure. But you don't need to be in combat. You don't have to uh, have your eye blown out like Dan Crenshaw to be you know to be seen as a hero, especially with the Republican base. So it was an especially un- nowadays. Yes, the exactly. War, the war on terror is very unpopular with voters now. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So you didn't need this. It was an unnecessary mistake and an easily avoidable one. So this does beg a very important question regarding the double-edged sword that is running first-time candidates, people who have never held office, who have never run for office before. Is it safe for us, in for a movement that is inherently populist and built by outsiders, again, Donald Trump, first person ever elected president who never served in a political office or never had any military experience— is it safe to gamble on unknowns who could make one gaffe that a more experienced politician wouldn't make or otherwise have something about their past come out that could cost us a winnable seat? I personally am all for candidates who have never run for office before. Obviously, President Trump, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, Herschel Walker, Dr. Oz, J.R. Majewski, and others. Because they embody the concept of a citizen politician, which is what the founding fathers always wanted. They didn't want professional politicians. They didn't want for all just a bunch of lawyers to become politicians. They wanted so, you know, the blacksmith or or the bartender could run for office. And doing so by electing these people who've never run before, again, AOC did that. She was literally a bartender before she unseated the number three Democrat in the House. Outsiders like that represent the biggest middle finger we could possibly give to the establishment. But perhaps going forward, some candidates like Majewski should be, I don't want to say reined in, but maybe better coached on how to balance between traditional campaign decorum, as it were, and still knowing when you can turn on the raw outsider appeal and throw the red meat to the base and get a crowd fired up. We'll see if this even matters enough in Majewski's race. Uh, My first prediction here, I think he is going to win. I think ultimately, R plus six seat, political outsider, yeah, the gaffe was really dumb, but it seems to be something more that the media has really turned him into a punching bag over rather than something that the base really hates about him. Kind of like the Herschel Walker abortion story. Same thing. The media is going after him for it, but the base doesn't seem to care either way. 
And if Kyle's advice is any indication, you know, our friend Kyle Winner, who was in studio not too long ago, the same that could be said for J.D. Vance can be said for this guy. As long as he keeps reminding the base that he is supported by Donald Trump, who is very popular in Ohio, he should ultimately win this race and unseat this longtime feminist icon. Uh, Jacob, what say well, you? I would disagree with you a little bit on the founders' take. I mean, the founders, most of them were elitists, and many of them didn't even want the people to be allowed to vote. And if they did want the people to vote, they wanted to be elitists themselves, like uh, just an elite, like only elitists to be allowed to vote. So I, I don't think that the founders necessarily wanted blacksmiths to wind up in Congress. Um, that being said, that's more of an Andrew Jackson take. Like Andrew Jackson was really the one who popularized the guy, the average everyday man on the street, Mr. Everyman America, to be able to run for Congress and and, uh, and serve. The problem with that is you can do that, provided that your platform is populist. Mm-hmm. Like if you are a genuinely, you have a genuine populist platform, and you're in, you're interested in genuine wealth redistribution then to a certain extent that's feasible if that's what your base wants. But with the Republican Party, it's very much – it's still very much a, a middle-class party. And you know, middle-class people, they expect a certain decorum, like you said. Like there there's certain standards. And the, the idea – I think this guy was genuinely banking on it still being popular to be a war hero. But I think he was still banking on people just being drawn to the idea of this war hero because even if it was true. I would assume everything he said was true. Mm-hmm. I don't think that would have mattered to most voters in 2022. No, and I it, think a lot of it is just a lot of they're still stuck in 2005. They still think that the, the average. I don't know if you've ever seen the the show Homeland, but in Homeland you've got a returning Marine who is encouraged to run for Congress and then gets put on as, as the VP gets put on the VP ticket just because he's a returning war hero. He's never done anything other than just survive capture. <laughs> this was kind of the idea like behind John McCain. Yeah, this guy was captured, so let's make him president. Exactly, exactly. You know, as, as of course, then-candidate Trump famously said, I like people who weren't captured, all right? Like, yeah, just, and that really encapsulates the difference between Trump and the Republican Party and really mm-hmm. the new wave of Republicans. Exactly. Like, again, if you're going to try to go like this outsider, you know, everyday citizen politician running, I, it's obviously it's way more popular right now to run for office because you are a parent who made a speech at a school board meeting against critical race theory and transgenderism that went viral. That's going to have more appeal than, you know, a veteran who, you know, went to Afghanistan right after 9-11. And again, I say that myself. As a child of the 9-11 generation, I see the growing gap between that day and where we are now. Like, yes, we still remember it. We still remember the impact of it and we, you know, what we had to do to make sure that never happened again. But it's not as relevant now the same way Pearl Harbor is not quite as relevant now as it was 80 years ago. But with that being said, I I do still think this guy can pull it off. I hope he does, uh, if for nothing else, to stop that woman from breaking the record. Because, you know, I'm all for, you know, stopping, you know, Democratic women from breaking glass ceilings, whether it's Hillary Clinton or, you know, any of these other people. And the guy just seemed really cool. That, that, that alone is enough to overcome and uh, forget about the lie, nor the lie, if nothing else, than to keep this woman from breaking that glass ceiling. Exactly. Exactly. I am all for it. And further solidifying Ohio as based Trump territory. Now we go across the country to the opposite of a great state like Ohio. I have to. What else am I going to do as a former Californian but talk about a handful of races in my home state? So I'm going to focus on three congressional districts here with a kind of recurring theme. Uh, for a quick recap, for those of you guys who don't remember, uh, this oh, this feels like a lifetime ago for me. The distant year of 2018. At the time, Republicans held 14 out of the 53 
seats in the House from California. But in 2018, just like that, half of those seats, 7 of 14, were suddenly flipped to the Democrats, including every seat in the longtime conservative stronghold of Orange County, which, you know, right there on the, the southern coast, wide, widely seen as, you know, a bastion of the Republican Party. You know, Ronald Reagan was, you know, popular there. Richard Nixon was from that area, area originally, from Yorba Linda. And that was seen as a huge deal that the red district, the, all the red districts flipped completely blue, just seemingly overnight. Now, how did this happen, of course? Not just because, oh, it's the midterms in the middle of President Trump's term, so the party out of power does better. This was widely attributed to a law that was passed in late 2016 in California that legalized the practice of ballot harvesting in the state, which, again, is when third parties are legally allowed to go collect ballots for voters. They're not family members. They're not friends, you know, designated by the voter. They can be a Democrat nonprofit that can go to register Democrats home and say, hey, we're here to collect your ballot for you and drop it off for you. So you don't even have to get out of your slippers. And of course, that's illegal in every other state for good reason up until COVID happened. And then they kind of, you know, temporarily, as it were, legalized ballot harvesting in, in multiple other states. But California did it first. And because it was late 2016, they didn't have time to implement it in time for the 2016 election when Trump was elected, but they weaponized it in 2018. And that's how seats that have been Republican for decades in Orange County, in the Central Valley, my old area, flipped blue, even though in the primaries, they were devious about this. The primaries, because remember, California has a top two primary system, right, where every candidate runs, Democrat, Republican, Green, what have you, they run in one primary. The top two candidates, regardless of party, advanced to the general election. In the primaries in 2018, the numbers were the same. Republicans did really well in those counties in Orange County. Uh, my home district still went for the Republican by huge margins. They waited, those clever bastards in the Democrat Party, they waited to roll out the ballot harvesting for the general election when Republicans would not see it coming, and we didn't. We were caught completely off guard. Suddenly, whoa, these seats are all gone. What the heck happened? So then in 2020, the California GOP finally did something right, and they began playing the same game, and they also began weaponizing ballot harvesting for their purposes. This ultimately led to four of the seven seats that were flipped in 2018 flipping back to the Republican Party. Now, however, it's not ballot harvesting that Republicans in California need to worry about anymore. It's the redistricting process. And we just talked about that, how that worked out very well for a Demo for Republicans in Ohio. Other states like Florida have used it very well. Obviously, in California, this was, been, was done in favor of Democrats, and it is paying off for them. It is likely that some of these seats will return to the Democrats once again, probably for good. A reference point for this is the website 538. That's the polling aggregate website and uh, election prediction outfit run by Nate Silver that, of course, they do put out some garbage polls here and there, but they also aggregate other polls. And in this case, one of the coolest things I've ever seen them create, honestly, is this very handy dandy guide that explains how redistricting for the next 10 years has changed in every one of the 50 states compared to the previous 10 years. So we're going to focus on three races in particular here in California. The 27th district, that is incumbent Republican Mike Garcia. These are all incumbent Republicans. Mike Garcia versus Christy Smith. Now, a bit of a flashback. Garcia was first elected in a special election in May of 2020 
that was held after the resignation of Katie Hill, one of the ones who was first elected in 2018. The con- she was you may remember Jacob. She was the congresswoman who liked to attend orgies and uh, have sexual relations with she her camp. Yes, with her campaign and congressional staff. Uh, the latter, of which of course is a violation of federal law. And uh, I love again. She insisted, even to the very end, up to her resignation, she insisted that she was the victim, not because she had sex with her staffers, because her nudes were leaked by the Daily Mail. She insisted well, she wasn't was. She into having her husband watch. Yes, literal. Uh, yeah, I guess a cuckette, maybe. <laughs> literal cuckoldry. There's a reason <laughs> yeah. memes are like, based on like reality. Is, well, you realize that Washington really is as bad as Mr. Wheelchair Man. What was his name? Madison Cawthorn. <laughs> it really is as bad as Madison Cawthorn said, and ironically, he's not around anymore. I, yep, he 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 was more right than we knew. But again, Katie Hill. I was genuinely surprised at the time when Katie Hill resigned. I thought for sure. She would stick it out because that, that the Me Too movement was still high and it was at very much the face. Like, all women are right. You believe all women. I thought she would stick it out. So when she ultimately resigned, I was quite surprised. But yeah. Hey, so he believed her. She's a woman. And they believed her. All right. Yeah. I mean, you can't deny the photographic evidence, of course. But ultimately, she resigned from that seat of disgrace after putting the swing in swing district. And now, so... <laughs> I'll be here all night, folks. Thanks. Uh, but Garcia, so Garcia won that special election against Christy Smith, who was an assemblywoman representing that same general area. It's based in some portions of Los Angeles. He then went on in the November election to defeat her again. Now, keep in mind here, this is District 27, but due to the redistricting, it was previously the 25th district, which was a D plus five seat. So Garcia winning was a pretty incredible accomplishment. Now, District 27 is D plus eight. And for context, in the May 2020 special election, he won in a landslide, 55% to Smith's 45%, a difference of about 17,000 votes, which is really just a further proof that Republicans do benefit more from special elections than Democrats do, at least, you know, an election where the base turns out and nobody else. But then in the regular election, just several months later, November of 2020, he won by a margin of 0.1. The actual total vote margin, exactly 333 votes. So not great. By the skin of his teeth, he made that one. So now with the district having a 3% increase in Democrats, I I think that's already game over for him right then and there. When you combine the fact that Smith already has the name recognition as the former assemblywoman from the area and having run twice before, she's just a a constant or perpetual candidate. I think she's finally going to win the seat and Garcia is going to be out come November, which is unfortunate because he is. We make the jokes about California Republicans. Garcia is one of the very few really solid Republicans in the state of California. So it'll be sad to see him go. But I think that seat is going to flip blue for sure. That's an official Eric prediction here on the right take. Moving over to Orange County, had to talk about at least one. Uh, District 45. This is Michelle Steele versus Democrat Jay Chen. Arguably the most most hotly contested of the Orange County seats. This previously was District 48, which had been represented by a guy named Dana Rohrabacher, another solid Republican, who was first elected in 1988, you know, the end of the Reagan presidency. So he was by far the senior most Republican member of Congress from California, more than Daryl Issa, more than Tom McClintock, more than any others. He was ultimately defeated in the general election in 2018 by Democrat Harley Rauda by a 7.2% margin, which is a difference of about 21,000 votes. Then in 2020, Michelle Steele, who, by the way, is the wife of longtime RNC committee member from California, Sean Steele, came in and narrowly defeated Rauda by a 2.2% margin, a margin of roughly 8,400 votes. But whereas the District uh, of 48, this is the key thing here, again, courtesy of 538, 
District 48 was R plus 2. The new District 45 is D plus 5. A seven-point swing from a Republican district to a Democrat district. And again, being that this is Orange County is the Asian vote is big in Orange County. That was a huge reason why Michelle Steele was able to win, why Young Kim was able to win. And you notice now, Harley Rauta is not coming back for a, a rematch. You know, white guy is not coming back. It's another Asian running against Michelle Steele. So couple that fact in there as well. I think this seat is going to be gone come November, unfortunately, for Miss Steele. And Orange County is going to remain more or less a purple, lean blue area. I think Young Kim is still going to win, but other Democrats in the area like Mike Levin and uh, Katie Porter are going to win re-election as well. Now, we have to talk about this one, guys. What else am I going to do? Uh, I'm, I may be biased, but of course I'm going to address it. California's 22nd. My turf, my former home district, the land where I was born and raised and lived for most of my life, David Valadeo versus Democrat Rudy Salas. This previously was the 21st district, which was already admittedly very blue. It was a D plus nine seat. It is now the 22nd district, which is D plus 10. So the backstory here, the full context on this district, here's the 411, all you need to know. David Valadeo was a dairy farmer who previously had no political experience. He had never run for office before. He was first elected to the California State Assembly for the 30th District, which roughly encompassed that area. And again, in the 2010 election cycle, as part of the Tea Party wave. So that's the very end of that 10-year cycle before the census of 2010 would come along. In 2012, he was then elected to the 21st District in a landslide upset that nobody really saw coming. Again, it was a heavily Democratic district. He won with 58% of the vote. He would go on to win by virtually the exact same margins in 2014 and 2016, winning 58% and 57% respectively. In 2018, uh, Valadeo, again, Valadeo had some hot streaks there, you know, solid majorities, 58, 57. Then in 2018, courtesy of the ballot harvesting, he narrowly lost to a this clown, this absolute loser from Maryland named TJ Cox. He lost by 0.8%, a difference of less than 900 votes. Cox, by the way, again, just to show how absurd it is in California. He's from Maryland. He moved to California a few months before the election. He actually ran in another, he initially ran in the primary for another district in California. I want to say District 8, but I could be wrong, but then dropped out when there were too many Democrats there, and he ran in 21 uh, as the only Democrat in the race. He's from Maryland. He had just moved to California. He never changed his registration. He was still a registered resident of Maryland who was incapable of voting for himself in the primary or the general election. And he still was allowed to run. And of course, he won representing a district he didn't live in. So that just goes to show how lost California is. Nobody liked him. Again, not not Hispanic, no, nothing, not even remotely resembling anybody else from the district. And he got in there. And we all knew it was the one of the biggest mistakes in modern political history, if you're being completely honest, if you look at the microcosm of each individual race, um, he ultimately, Valadeo came back and defeated Cox by a reverse version of the exact same margin, 0.8%, this time a difference of roughly 1,750 votes. Now, you got to look at the parallel timeline here with Valadeo's rise starting in 2012. Valadeo was succeeded in the state assembly that same year by Bakersfield City Councilman Rudy Salas who uh, was elected to the 32nd district, uh, which had previously been the 30th district, Valadeo seat. Now, like the U.S. House, the state assembly has two-year terms. So Salas was reelected every single time since 2012. His margins of victory have only gotten bigger over the years. He was first elected by about a six-point margin in 2012, then a 10-point margin in 2014. 
Then in 2016, he just exploded in popularity. He won by 30 points in 2016, 65-35. Then 36 points in 2018. His most recent election in 2020, he was reelected by a 20-point margin, 60-40. So now, having represented this area for 10 years... Salas very much has become just as much of a household name as Valadeo. He has portrayed himself in his campaign messaging as a moderate in comparison to the state party's San Francisco leadership, you know, Gavin Newsom, Nancy Pelosi, and the rest. Even though he's not really a moderate, you know, there are no moderate Democrats in California. He's certainly no moderate in the vein of like a Joe Manchin or Tulsi Gabbard. Is he as crazy as Pelosi or Newsom? No, but he's not, you know, a moderate, you know, blue collar type, whatever, blue dog Democrat. But unfortunately, he has managed to convince most of his constituents that he is a normal Democrat, as he were, or rather that he's not an insufferable Democrat. So realistically, Salas has been eyeing this congressional seat ever since he first got elected in, into the assembly in 2012. Starting with the 2010 elections, California state lawmakers are actually term limited. Uh, this was a law that they passed uh, right for that year. So that, of course, when Jerry Brown ran, Part of the term limits was two terms for the governor, two four-year terms. So Brown was elected in uh, 2000. Uh, he was elected in 2010. So he was allowed to. He had previously been governor in the 70s. He was allowed to serve two more full terms in 2010 and then re-election in 2014. Part of this term limit also included that members of the state legislature are limited to 12 years total across both chambers. So this means that they could serve six two-year terms in the assembly. That's 12 years. Three four-year terms in the Senate, two terms in each, that's eight years in the Senate and four years in the Assembly, or they could serve one term in the Senate and four terms in the Assembly. That's eight in the Assembly and four years in the Senate. So had Salas simply chosen to run for re-election this year, he would have easily won, but it would have been his final term in office, and then he would have nowhere else to go. He couldn't go to state Senate, and he's, this guy's not about to run for governor or anything, or senator. So realistically, he had nowhere else to go except for Congress. Point being... Even if Valadeo was at the height of his popularity, if this was 2012, 2014, 2016, Salas would still have been his worst nightmare in a good year. Compounding that, Valadeo's popularity has completely cratered as a result of his vote to impeach President Trump. He was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in the second trial. And Valadeo right now is one of only two pro-impeachment Republicans left running for office this year. All the others either retired or they lost their nomination. The other uh, who survived is Dan Newhouse in Washington. And like Newhouse, Valadeo ultimately only managed to win because the pro-Trump vote was split between multiple challengers. He was challenged by two other Republicans, former Fresno City Councilman Chris Mathis and Kings County Board of Education trustee Adam Medeiros. Valadeo got 25.6% of the primary vote. Mathis got 23.4% and Medeiros got 5.8%. So if you combine their votes together, that's 292 meaning that a single challenger, preferably Chris Mathis, who was early on very pro-Trump. He wore a MAGA hat and everything. He was very popular with the base there. He would have beaten Valadeo in the primary. Meanwhile, of course, Salas was the only Democrat running, which means there's no vote splitting there. And he was he came in first in the primary by a considerable margin. Now, bit of anecdotal evidence here, but nevertheless, an inside look through my connections to that district. Having spoken to friends and family back home, I can confirm that a significant number of Republican voters in that area are already fully committed Ballots have already gone out. Some of them have already voted. They are either not going to vote at all in that House race, which is basically a lost vote for Valadeo at the end of the day, or some of them even, not kidding, Jacob, are ready to vote for Salas over Valadeo to send a message that he betrayed the base by betraying President Trump. So when you combine this with the, dist 
the district's slight shift further into blue territory, you know, a plus 1% increase, this might just be enough to see Salas pull off uh, a narrow victory. Once he does, Valadeo's done for good. He's not coming back. And Salas will basically hold that seat for the rest of his life if he so chooses. And who's the other Republican? I know there's one other Republican who voted for uh, Trump's impeachment besides Valadeo. That is Dan Newhouse in Washington. And he did win because there were literally how many? There were like six or seven I think like eight Republicans running against him in that primary. Uh, there was one, a former police chief and, in fact, former gubernatorial nominee. This is the state of Washington, Lauren Culp, who was endorsed by Trump. But unfortunately, because there were six other Republicans running, they split the vote too much. Newhouse, uh, they also have a top two primary system like in California. So Newhouse came in uh, second and the Democrat came in first. It is a heavily red seat. I think it's like R plus 10 or R plus 12 or something like that. So he is expected to ultimately win. But that by the skin of his teeth and because, as we talked about in a previous episode, the pro-Trump contingent, you know, the, the challengers, the incumbent, could not learn the value of consolidation. They couldn't get over their individual egos. They couldn't all drop out and unite behind Culp because all the combined votes together, if they had gone to Culp, he would have beaten Newhouse and he would have gotten into the general election. It would be kind of interesting if Newhouse is the lone man, the one man standing after that voted for Trump's impeachment at the end of these midterms because in the future the media will try to use him – as their their never Trump Republican in Congress, but he yeah. won't. I guarantee you, he won't play ball because he understands that if he wants to keep that seat, he's going to have to downplay his vote for impeachment if he has any chance. Because in the future, uh, there's no guarantee that Republicans won't coalesce around one candidate to unseat him if he tries to play up his never Trump status. Exactly, and he's already benefiting in that sense from the fact that he obviously he did not go all in like a, a Cheney or Kinsinger. He didn't volunteer to be on the January 6th committee or anything like that. So he could, over time, he could. Hope that his voters will forget about it, but we'll wait and see. So the long and short of it, my final summary here of these races before we move on to your races of choice, Jacob. Um, while these California seats may not be taken as a result of voter fraud like in 2018, it will be an indication that Democrats have weaponized redistricting after the 2020 census just as much as Republicans have. Democrats have shored up Democrat seats. Republicans have shored up Republican seats. And this is a testament to how it has been said, you know, the media commentary after the census came out and the redistricting was done when it was all said and done is that there are much fewer swing districts, you know, R plus one or D plus two. There are more blue seats, deep blue seats. Blue seats got bluer, red seats got redder. There's not a lot of room for swing here, which in the future means we may, or at least for the next 10 years, we may very well not see massive landslides anymore. That's already a theme we mentioned. Republicans are not going to have a big landslide uh, plus 40 or plus 60 like they should, but that may go for Democrats too. If, you know, Trump gets reelected in 2024 and then the 2026 midterms where they have the advantage as the uh, opposition party, they may not see a really big swing either. So is, is that ultimately a good thing? I guess you could argue it is. I mean, because you know, these massive swings are pretty chaotic, but at the end of the day, it is polarization. And I mean, polarization doesn't lead anywhere good, but it certainly is an indication that, you know, the sooner things get worse, the sooner things may finally get better. So in oh. jumping into my five that I'm going to be covering, uh, of course, you feel free to jump in anytime you want to, Eric, because this is I'm more of a policy wonk guy. I'm more of the idea, like more focused on ideology than I am the individual horse races. So this isn't mm -hmm. I wouldn't say this is necessarily my blood sport, but uh, I do. I do enjoy following the more high profile races. And these are I picked out five. I'm going to briefly mention New Hampshire's first because we did cover that. We devoted an entire main topic in one of our previous episodes to Caroline Levitt in that race. 
So we'll briefly mention that. And then a couple of tough ones that Republicans need to hold on to to avoid having to make up elsewhere. But I'm going to be covering Oregon 6th, Oregon 5th, New Jersey 7th, briefly New Hampshire's 1st, Rhode Island 2nd, and Michigan's 7th. So starting out with Oregon 6th. The Oregon 6th district has recently been, of course, uh, as all the districts uh, have been, it's been reconfigured. It's primarily a suburban district of Portland. It includes part of uh, Portland, Oregon, or far left-wing blue Portland. So it's not necessarily a district you would expect Republicans to have a shot at. The counties it includes, if you're in that area and you recognize these counties, or you've been to that area, Salinas, Clackamas. I've been to Clackamas before. I actually worked there briefly. Um, actually, that's not the list I'm looking for. Okay, here we go. So if you've been to Oregon or you're familiar with the local counties, it's Polk, Yam Hill, with parts of Marion, Clackamas, and Clackamas, and Washington County. So it includes parts of five different counties. So the Cook Political Report has ranked this as a toss-up. You've got Democrat Andrea Salina. She has a slight edge over Republican Mike Erickson. And uh, Mike Erickson is a supply chain consultant, so he's able to use that to his advantage, focusing on the supply chain issues. It's caused uh, inflation and shortages, and it's actually really been helping him. He has um, so a few recent polls in October. This was one that was conducted for the Erickson campaign. It showed him leading in this race 44% to 39%. And uh, one conducted for the Salinas campaign showed her ahead 45 to 44, which was down from a September poll that predicted her leading 48 to 45. So I'm going to predict that Mike Erickson is going to win this race. This is a D plus four race. And uh, just having been around people outside of the urban areas in the Northwest, I can tell you that many of them are very amenable, very amenable to Republican candidates. And in an economy like this, I feel like uh, he may win by as many as five points. So Oregon sixth, that's one to keep an eye on. That'll be right, interesting, too. I was, that'll be interesting, too, because that is uh, the Oregon six is a new seat. Oregon is one of the few states that gained a seat in the census. So how demoralizing would that be for Democrats in a blue state like Oregon? They get a new district for the first time in 10 years and they lose it to Republicans. That'd be great. Yes, that's correct. It was not. I was wrong. Actually, it was not reconfigured. It was actually added. So moving on to Oregon's fifth, this is another one that is Democrat, currently held by a Democrat, that Republicans have a clear shot at picking up because as it currently stands, Republicans only hold one congressional seat on the West Coast. It's a congressional seat in southern Washington. It was one of them. Uh, we actually covered the guy who's running against an incumbent who voted for Trump's impeachment. Joe, Joe Kent. Kent. So yeah, yeah, Joe Kent, is uh, he won that uh, primary. So, but right now, that's the only one on the West Coast that's currently held by a Republican. So Republicans actually have a shot to pick up two with Oregon's fifth and Oregon's sixth. Uh, in this particular race, it's Jamie McLeod Skinner, who ousted incumbent Kurt Schrader in the primary. Now, Jamie McLeod Skinner is a left-wing progressive. This is one reason why it's expected to go Republican, because she's considered too far left for even the somewhat moderate liberals in this district. So this district uh, covers uh, both, it covers urban, rural, and suburban areas, parts of Portland, Lake Oswego, Oregon City, and Lynn County. You may remember uh, we, McLeod. we you may remember we talked about this district briefly because in a previous episode, because Kurt Schrader, the incumbent she defeated, was the very first person to receive a primary endorsement in 2022 from Joe Biden. So it was seen as a huge deal. He, he's he's a moderate. He's been called the Joe Manchin of the House. So it was a huge deal that Biden finally placed a bet. He finally bet on one horse in the 2022 midterms, and that horse then lost the primary. So that was a huge blow to Biden and a sign that, yeah, again, as we mentioned, the polarization of the parties, hardcore progressives are primarying out moderate incumbents on both sides. And the Republican in this race is former Happy Valley Mayor Lori Chavez-Dereamer. 
And Chavez Dreamer, she was also on the Happy Valley City Council before becoming mayor, and she's a marketing director for a network of medical clinics that she co-founded with her husband. So this is currently, there were actually more Republicans who voted in the primary than there were Democrats who voted in this particular primary. So I'm, I fully believe that uh, she will win that race. This will be a Republican pickup. It's my prediction. Uh, she may even win as much as by seven or eight points with the current climate of the West Coast. And this is one thing that people need to realize when it comes to the West Coast. It's not like the Northeast. It's very difficult for a conservative to actually win in the Northeast. Republicans can win, but because they're so close to Washington, D.C., they're so close to New York City, the liberalism of the Northeast is so ingrained in their psyche that it's very, very difficult for populists to break through, except in rural districts like in upstate New York. On the West Coast, it's it, even though there's you've got a lot of really weird left-wing kooks, but most of the population is pretty apolitical and pretty normal for the most part. So moving on to New Jersey's 7th Congressional District, this will be a rematch for the 2020 contest, and um, it's currently represented by Tom Malinowski. He's running against Republican Thomas Keene, and th this district has swung back and forth between Democrats and Republicans in recent years. And, uh, of course, New Jersey is a state that usually re uh, runs reliably Democrat, but they had a nail-biter in the governor's race in 2020, I'm sorry, 2021, along with the Virginia gubernatorial race, and that is one in which the Republican almost won, of course. It's the one where the, uh, I believe he was a truck driver who ended up running for uh, unseating the Senate the president of the Senate in that particular yes. race as well. So Ed, New Jersey. Ed Durr, who spent like, I think, Durr, yes. $53 on his campaign. <laughs> he had I think he actually spent most of it just at Starbucks. Like He didn't, even, he and didn't even really spend much of it on his actual campaign. And Dunkin' Donuts. And one campaign ad, his whole only campaign commercial he ever filmed was filmed on his iPhone. And he won. But anyway, so, yeah, so it shows that New Jersey uh, can surprise you. Uh, Malinowski defeated Keene in the 2020 race by only 5,000 votes. So this is a toss-up. It could go either way. I'm going to predict the Republican will pick the, uh, this particular congressional race up just because of the politics in New Jersey. And for people who know New Jersey, you've got uh, people around the New York City suburbs are super, super liberal. Outside of that area, it's extremely conservative. And so that's the thing about blue states is the conservatives in the states are many times hardcore right wing, whereas in a lot of red states, the people are just kind of, yeah, whatever, a Republicans going to win regardless. So they don't even really stay up on it. And that's like, you know, we've talked to uh, Tom Papert about this many times about the people in Kansas. It's like a Republican wins all the time, so they don't really have to stay up on their ideology. Mm -hmm. All right. So as I mentioned, we're going to briefly talk about New Hampshire's first. This is a this will most likely give us a Gen Z candidate in Congress. Um, I believe we currently have one. So this will be the second Gen Z uh, candidate that we have representing in Congress, the first Republican Gen Z candidate. And we talked about her in um, one of our previous episodes. And she's going to be unseating Chris Pappas. And uh, currently that's a toss up. She's actually leading in some of the polls. So I think that she's going to be able to pull that one off. All right, moving on to Rhode Island second. This is an interesting one. So in Rhode Island, this is one of those areas where Republicans never win for a congressional seat or the governor's race. By the way, just fun fact, we can revisit this when we do the final predictions episode. I actually disagree with you on, on New Hampshire. I think Caroline Levitt is going to lose, but that's just my take. We can talk about it when we get to that episode. In Rhode Island's second congressional district, you've got Alan Fung, who is a Republican who is actually pro-Trump, but he's somewhat of a moderate. And he's going to be running against Seth Magaziner. They recently had their debate. And of course, it went kind of as you would expect. Magaziner was kind of claiming he's going to outlaw abortion. He's a far right. He's going to enable the Republicans to out to end Social Security and Medicare. And Fung was just throwing back inflation and taxes, yada, yada, the basic Republican talking points. However, 
What's interesting is Fung is leading in every single poll. Yes. Not only is he leading in every single poll, but in some points he's up by double digits. So this is one race in which I believe that he's going to win. And part of it, part of what helps is Fung is the, was the mayor of Cranston, which is the second largest city in Rhode Island. Rhode Island is kind of an interesting state because their governor was, even though she was a Democrat, she was actually, I think she's serving in the Biden administration right now, but uh, she was the governor during the Trump administration. I can't remember her name, but she was one of the most moderate Democrats in the country. Is that, she was extremely fiscally conservative. Was that Gina Raimondo or Raimondo? Yes. yes. Okay, yes. yes. That was her, Gina Raimondo. Yeah, she was one of the, she was actually one of the most conservative governors in the country, even when you count Democrats and Republicans together, just because she was so fiscally conservative. So Rhode Islanders are, are very unique in that it's part of New England, so they vote Democrat. But they're definitely more old school Democrats, so I'm definitely going to say that Fung is going to take this seat. It is interesting to note, too, this particular race is kind of a, a collision of statewide candidates as well. Why this is such a high profile race is Seth Magaziner is actually the state treasurer of Rhode Island. And then uh, Alan Fung actually was twice in a row the Republican nominee for governor of Rhode Island. He, of course, uh, was the nominee in 2014 and 2018. He lost both of those elections to Gina Raimondo. Uh, but in 2014, he actually came really close. He only lost by about four points. And that is largely attributed to a third party candidate in Robert Healy with a third party called the Moderate Party, which is centrist, but leaned towards fiscal conservatism, who got 21 percent of the vote. So had an op for that third party candidate. Again, 2014, that was a great year for Republicans. He could have been governor. So I think certainly, yeah, I agree with the statewide name recognition. And like you said, he is pro-Trump, but he's more of a moderate. So that's enough for both sides, right? He gets the Trump supporters in the state and he gets moderate Republicans, again, like a Glenn Youngkin. So I agree with your assessment there. I think Fung is going to win that seat. Moving on to Michigan's 7th Congressional District. In Michigan 7th, it's Alyssa Slotkin, who is the Democratic incumbent. She was one of only seven Democrats who won their seats to Congress in 2020 in a congressional district that was won by President Trump. She is extremely vulnerable. She only won her election in 2020, 51% to 47%. So I believe that this is going to be a pickup for the Republican candidate. Uh, She's going against Tom Barrett. Tom Barrett was elected to represent Michigan Senate District 24 in 2018. Before that, before serving the Senate, he represented District 71 in the Michigan House of Representatives. Uh, he was He's a U.S. Army veteran. He served in Iraq, and he was a helicopter pilot for the Michigan Army National Guard. So he's got the veteran status. And Slotkin is, like I said, you know, she's one of the few Democrats who actually won their seats in a district that uh, Trump won in 2020. We have a clip here because Alyssa Slotkin made the news recently, or rather, uh, a response to something she said. As you said, she's one of very few Democrats in a seat won by Trump, which is a huge deal. That's very high stakes. And she is doing everything that she can to win this seat. And this was highlighted in a recent MSNBC interview with Nancy Pelosi. So let's talk about what Alyssa Slotkin said on Meet the Press. I want to play that for you. I have been very vocal, including with my own leadership in the House, that we need a new generation. We need new blood, period, across the Democratic Party, in the House, the Senate and the White House. I, I, I think that the country has been saying that. So what do you say to your own caucus, to these young members? They're you know, obviously in tough fights, but they want to see the change. I say just win, baby. Just win. If that's what you have to say to win, fine. 
<laughs> First off, I gotta say that sounds like such a cope from Nancy Pelosi. Like oh, man. she she knows she's done. She knows she's not gonna be speaker anymore after this year. She I think she has said publicly she's vowed that if she's not speaker again this year, she will never run for speaker again. She'll never be like House Majority Leader again. And she's like eighty something. She's like in her late eighties. She probably should be on her way out of Congress unless she just wants to be there for life, like Diane Feinstein. But body language is a key thing. Again, this is audio only. But watching the video version of that. Alyssa Slotkin's body language in that uh, the video of her, she she she's doing the head bobbing a lot, like her head is kind of bobbing around frantically. Her eyes are constantly darting off camera, like looking off to the side, like she's reading cue cards or something. She is clearly nervous about her race, and that is why she's pulling that trigger of like, I am gonna condemn my leadership and say, yeah, indirectly say Nancy Pelosi should go. I won't support Nancy Pelosi for speaker, which is like the the kill switch. Like if a Democrat in a moderate seat in a red seat, you got nothing else turn against Pelosi. You know, Tim Ryan has tried to invoke that in his race against J.D. Vance for Senate, and I don't think it's going to work. She seems nervous. She comes across as very nervous. So I uh, I think I agree with your assessment, Jacob, that, that she won't win. She will ultimately lose that seat anyway, and Pelosi still will end up not being, she won't have to worry about Alyssa Slotkin not voting for her because Alyssa Slotkin will be gone, and Pelosi will not be speaker anymore anyway. And to close it out, I'm just going to mention two honorable mentions. These are seats that Republicans really need to hold on to because, of course, every Republican seat that's flipped to Democrats, that's an additional seat that they have to try to pull out of their uh, pull out of their hat and win to uh, to keep the to keep the balance the same. One is Nebraska's second district. This is a district that Biden actually won, and of course, Nebraska, like Maine, is they split their electoral votes, so he actually got an electoral vote out of this, whereas Trump won the electoral vote in Maine. But this is represented by Republican Don Bacon. And in the primary, just to kind of give you a hint of how close this is, there were 28,217 people who voted in the Republican primary. In the Democratic primary, there were 27,192. So this will come down to the wire. There will probably be settled by a few hundred or at the very at the very most a few thousand votes. So uh, Don Bacon in Nebraska second, that's one that's um, really going to be coming down to the line. Another one is Republican Ken Calvert. He has represented his constituents from California for three decades. And he's currently the representative of the 42nd Congressional District. He was, uh, whenever they did the, the redistricting, of course, California lost a seat. He will now be running in the 41st Congressional District. It used to be a Republican stronghold, but it now encompasses a slice of the Coachella Valley and most notably Palm Springs, which is the home uh, to a very concentrated homosexual voting base and um it just ken calvert just showing the spinelessness of republicans he of course was very anti-homosexual marriage for throughout his entire career he even successfully won in the 90s by accusing his opponent of being a homosexual his opponent later came out of the closet nice. but ken calvert decided to vote for homosexual marriage oh. over the summer he decided to switch his position now that he's being redistricted into a position into a seat that has a lot of homosexual voters, he's now going to decide that he's in favor of gay marriage, which, of course, I mean, even if you supported homosexual marriage, I mean, that's so obviously opportunistic. He's not going to gain any votes by, by doing that. He's not no. going to win anybody over. But, uh, yeah, so Ken Calvert, he is another one that, despite his uh, spinelessness, really needs to win the 41st. Exactly. And yeah, that's right. That's one of very few Republican seats we cannot afford to lose. If, if we were to have a smaller majority than ideal due to California, that would just really say a lot like there. Because like we said, we're going to lose a few seats in California due to redistricting and other Republican seats are going to get a little bit stronger. Like McCarthy's district got a little bit stronger. Uh, the district formerly held by Devin Nunes got a little bit stronger. 
But yeah, I, I think Calvert will probably ultimately pull it off. Most of the polls favor him. He did do perform. He did perform quite well in the primary. And when you combine his votes with one other Republican candidate, it forms a majority. So I think he will ultimately pull that election off as well. And of course, we didn't mention we skipped over a lot of red state congressional districts that have where Democrats have been districted out. An example yep. is the is the Nashville district. We didn't mention that. Another one is uh, Tampa Suburban District, where I believe it's Anna Luna is her name. Anna Paulina Luna. She's running in the seat that Charlie Crist uh, vacated to run for governor. Yes, so she should win that seat. Republicans should pick up the seat, um, should pick up all the districts around Nashville, which would give them a net one in Tennessee. Um, Even just the redistricting, again, just the redistricting alone, we've mentioned this before. If you just count the red state redistricting, that should give Republicans, because they need to pick up five to take the majority. That should give them the majority. But winning a majority in an off-year election like this is not good enough. They should win at least 20. If they can't win at least 20, it says something is horribly, horribly wrong, which we know this. As nationalists, we like we know this, that there's something horribly wrong about the messaging of the Republican Party. But if they can't pick up at least 20, you would think that the Republican voters would, would at least say, hey, we need new leadership. You know, it's time to to get new leadership in the Republican Party, someone uh, a leadership that can actually communicate with the base and get people to turn out and vote. Exactly. This is again the one area where they are guaranteed to win. They should not settle for just a majority, a majority of two or three seats that can easily be foiled by Dan Newhouse or a couple other anti-Trump Republicans. They need to go. <laughs> and again, best case scenario. I'm, this is not my prediction. I'm saying best case scenario. They could have picked up 35 seats or so, give or take, you know, a little less or a little more. I don't think they're going to win that many, but we will see. I'll save that for the final predictions episode when we go through all the races we want to predict, and we'll just kind of vaguely cover them. We won't go as in-depth as we did with this episode, but we'll save that for what will most likely be the final episode before the elections come around now in 20 days, folks. 19 days for those of you who are listening on, on the day that this episode premieres. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in, as always. Be sure to follow us for all of our latest content at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling oh so generous and want to continue supporting what we do here on the show in this final crunch time before the elections, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.